Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of a series of conversations called Faith Forums. Here we discuss some of the big issues facing our world and explore how our faith compels us to take action. You'll hear from faith leaders and activists on the front lines. Welcome to the conversation. All right. Hey, everybody. We're getting all set up here. It's going to be a great night. And uh, I'm not going to introduce anybody yet because some folks are, are still going to be joining on. But I wanted to uh, I'm going to try to do something fancy here, which is um, always risky for me is to try to show you a little video as people join in. And first of all, I, a friend probably to several of us is Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. And what we're talking about tonight has been a passion of his. Uh, so you can get your Ben and Jerry's out if you want to. But uh, I'm going to play you a little video of uh, that Ben made showing us kind of how crazy things really are when, when we're talking about war and militarism. And uh, this video was made a few years ago, so it's even outdated. It's more wild than even when he made this. So uh, check this out for just a second. The federal budget affects everybody, but it's so big that nobody can figure it out. Federal budget? What do I care? What do you care? It's your money. And it's why college scholarships have dried up, our public schools are broke, and there's 12 million kids growing up in poverty. Well, these are serious problems. Now, I'm a dessert guy. So when I'm faced with a serious problem, I think about dessert. In this case, Oreo cookies. Let's say one cookie equals $10 billion. The Pentagon's annual budget is 40 cookies or $400 billion a year. So how much do you think we spend on this other stuff? Not much. And that's why our schools don't work and children are left out in the cold. The government makes it sound like it's impossible to solve these problems. But it's not. Here's how we could do it. Just take five cookies a year off this pile. Use one cookie to rebuild our schools, one to eliminate our need for Mideast oil, and two to feed all of the six million starving kids around the world. Then take the last cookie. You've all done this before, and use half to provide health insurance and a quarter to provide Head Start for every kid that needs it. You can eat the other quarter cookie, but remember, that's two and a half billion dollars. Try not to choke. But that's going to make our armed forces too weak. How are we supposed to pay for our nukes and our new jet fighters and submarines? We'll be vulnerable. Vulnerable to who? Russia. Our highest spending potential enemy spends seven cookies worth, and they're actually an ally. The military budget of China, the next highest spender, is five cookies, and they're a major trading partner. What about the axis of evil? We need those cookies to help fight terrorism. Those guys combined spend less than one cookie, not even a whole cookie. So, as you can see... It's possible to pay for all these social needs and still have more than enough left over to deal with these guys. The federal. So that was a, a little video that Ben Cohen made. Uh, and, and like I said, those, those statistics are outdated. Uh, just to, as we begin tonight, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I want to offer more current statistics as to where we're at right now. And 
right now the Pentagon spends more in three seconds than the average American makes in an entire year. Think about this. We, Russia has eight foreign military bases. Britain has seven. France has five. The U.S. has 662 military bases all over the world. So when we talk about empire, when we read about empire, it, it, it's uh, uh, something that's not an exaggeration of what we see you know, the U.S. doing in our world right now. When we think of weapons of mass destruction, this month we remember the anniversary of the, the Hiroshima bomb and this Nagasaki bomb that killed hundreds of thousands of people. And you think we, we are the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons on civilian people. And we did it twice in one week. And right now, when you look at our world, there's uh, John is, can correct any of my statistics I get wrong, but it's around 15,000 nuclear warheads that are in the world. Um, only nine of 196 countries, only nine have nuclear weapons. Two countries own almost all of them. 93% of the nuclear weapons are owned by the U.S. and Russia. We have almost half of them. And we have bombs that are 80 times stronger than the Hiroshima bomb. When we think of that, you know, the, the stockpile of, of weapons in America is over 50,000 Hiroshima bombs. 50 of those can kill 200 million people. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, that's what we're talking about, right? What it means to live out the way of peace, to, to live into the teaching of Jesus, that if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And of course, heavy on our hearts right now is what's happening in Afghanistan, where we see that once again, we've lived into this myth that violence is going to solve our problem or that we're going to bring peace by militarism. And we're seeing, you know, a whole um, country that's, you know, collapsing um, as, as we, uh, before our eyes. So as we start tonight, um, we want to start it with poetry. Tonight's going to be filled with truth. It's going to be filled with hope, but it's also, um, uh, there's a heaviness about it uh, because of the, the toll that, militarism and war have played and continue to play uh, in our world. So I want to invite uh, Micah Bornet, who's a dear brother, great friend, and uh, uh, going to bring us a word tonight. So welcome, man. Thanks. Evening, everybody. Um, yeah, I actually uh, want to start this event with a poem by someone else that I think was just very appropriate um, for what we're talking about tonight. And it's from an anthology of poetry called The Poetry of Arab Women. And it's an excellent collection. Um, and this particular poet, um, her name is Suhir Hamad. And the poem is called Broken in Beirut. Make no mistakes made here. These murderers are precise, mathematical. These people blown apart, burned alive, flesh and blood all mixed together a sight no human being can take. And yet we take and take, desensitized to the sacred defamed. Witness youth strap 40 pounds of dynamite to sore bodies, cause we always return to what we know. And if that's war, we return over and over to it. Sit at its feet to remove stone shoes, bones and blues. Don't know what to do with visions of blown up babies. So we lame nails and lame tongues which should protest. 
love those who cannot, love us, hate ourselves, and become obsessed with puzzles. Shifting through rubble, we ask, where is the head that goes with this seven-year-old shoulder? Shattered, this leg looks like it fits with this hip, this dead with that dead, because they wear twin rings on bloated purple hands. Tired of taking fear and calling it life, being strong and getting over shit to prepare for more shit. When my heart was broken, I turned to the only dynamic I knew more hurtful, my father. We return to what we know. It's 1996 in Beirut all over again. This time, the murdered are those who survived the last time. And this time survivors are preparing for the next time when fire will rain down on heads bowed in prayer. I want to go home, not only to mama and baba, I want to go home to before me and pain bombs and war, before loveless sex, poetry and chocolate. I want to remember what I've never lived, a home within me, within us, where honey is offered from my belly to sweeten baby's breath, make boys moral and girls strong. Want to return to the belly of my honey and feed myself earth before 1996, 1982, 73 and 48 before TV, race, marriage, and meat. Return to what we've forgotten, what hunger has faked. Return to the whiteness of black, to the drum, the hum, the sum of my parts, to God, the boiling in my belly. Touch it, taste, name it, and come back to here. Come back and make no mistakes. Be precise, get back to work, shifting through the rubble mathematically, building a new day with offerings of honey and memory, never forgetting where we come from, where we've been, and how sweet honey on the lips of survivors. Mm. Mm. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Reminds me of the hat on Rev there, that the role of the artist, in case you can't say it, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible and, uh, and you do that, man. You do that. We're going to hear another piece from Mike at the end. Uh, I want to bring Diana in first um, uh, because, you know, each of us that that's going to be a part of the conversation tonight has a story that's put a fire in our bones on this particular issue. And we're not single issue people, but all these intersect. But on this particular one, uh, the, the folks that are in this conversation tonight have spent their life trying to build an alternative to the war and militarism that we see all around us. And um, Diana particularly has seen both sides of this and uh, has written an incredible book about her story, which is her book is Waging Peace. And she's also on staff with Red Letter Christians here, but I knew I, now, but I knew her before all that. And I want you um, just to, to introduce yourself and share a little of your story, especially as you think about faith and militarism. Thanks, Diana. Well, it's really good to be here. And it's also a hard day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here as a soldier and these are hard days to watch. And 
so I just I'm I'm gonna tell you that I have a I have a little intro, but the truth is that I only became a peacemaker because because I was deployed to the Iraq War and I was 23 and I was part of the invasion. And so watching Afghanistan and being part and thinking of all those soldiers who um, they're just, a lot of them were kids, um, just generations of young people who were called up, who have been deployed to Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Um, I was 23. And when I went to Iraq, um, I had only been there a couple of weeks and right away, I, I was forced with this decision whether or not I was going to run over a small Iraqi child if I needed to. And in that moment, between me and God, I knew that even though I had made an oath to my country, I knew between me and my faith in God that I would never take a life. I would give my life, but I would never take a life. And that I was going to be a citizen of life and the kingdom of God, um, but I would never take a life. And that was the day I became a peacemaker and it changed everything for me. Um, but it also made me homeless in a big way. And so I think this last week of watching the violence in Afghanistan has been gut-wrenching. And for all veterans and all soldiers and whatever people believe, it is traumatic to watch the pain of soldiers and veterans and civilians and of violence and what war does to people, um, what it does to them in the moment and what it does to them for a lifetime. And so um, my war experience is 17 years ago, and yet it still affects me as a person of faith, as a mom, as a friend. And so I'm committed to waging peace. And I think peace is working for justice and instigating joy, and it's gonna take all of us. Um, and war can never give us what peace, peace can do. And I believe we haven't even tried it. Um, and it's worth it because the carnage that we keep seeing never ends. It just never ends. And um, the pain is so big, so big. And for all family members um, of veterans, of soldiers, of refugees, um, I think we have to do better. So, and it's interesting that this call was planned months ago. We had no idea that we would be sitting here together watching what we're watching and the questions that everybody would be asking. Um, and I had no idea it would be so hard to be on this call today um, yeah. with the experience I've had. Um, but I'm committed to having the conversation and I'm committing to being here. So I'm grateful to be here, but I also um, might have less words than I would have had a month ago because it is so um just ricochets back and asks all those questions again and again of how can this keep happening i have veteran friends um, from vets for peace from vietnam and these are the same questions and the same stories mm. um and other you know reverend john dear well you probably have a lot of the same stories and i just can't they 
they have the same questions and I have the same questions and we're born generations apart. And I'm a third generation army veteran. And I feel like how can we keep handing our children this in the next war and the next war? So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thanks for bringing your whole self. And as you were sharing, I wasn't sure if I had this with me, Diana, but I carry um, often when I'm traveling, I'm in Tennessee right now with, with my mom and um I, uh, but I brought these with me and they are dog tags that veterans have given me. And in particular, one of them said, these are my chains. They've been um, holding me hostage to this idea that violence is the solution to our violence. And, you know, one after another has told me stories like yours that, that they went to Iraq under this idea that they're going to end terrorism. And they discovered that that we're just creating it, that we're fueling it, that we're the ones that are that are adding, you know, fire to an already hostile world. And um, one of them said, I found that I could no longer carry the cross of Jesus in one hand and a gun in the other. Um, and, and we also remember that the biggest cause of death of our veterans is not combat, but it's suicide. More veterans are dying from their own guns than in combat. So this affects, you know, has so many ripples through our society. So Thanks for bringing who you are, sister. And uh, I'm going to introduce Rev. Uh, everybody in the movement knows him as Rev, Reverend Lennox Yearwood. Uh, and, you know, as we're thinking about this, I was thinking of um, Cyprian Rev, one of the you know early bishops of the church. When he said, when an individual kills another individual, everybody calls it evil. But when the state does it in mass, somehow we sanctify it. And we call it justice or we call it good. We baptize it with 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 our our religion. And, and you're one of those who is committed to your faith and you've been an interrupter of violence and injustice. I know right now you're on the roll. You know, you're you're, you're going to an event. Tell us about it. But also tell us what what puts the you know, the fire in your bones uh, on, especially as we're talking about violence in all its forms, man. Thanks for being here. No, thank thank you for having me. It's always going to be in all of your presence, um, and I thank you for your for bringing your entire your whole truth. Um, that was a, a beautiful story, and it's good to see my my dear brother, uh, Father John Deere. We actually sit on the board of Veterans for Peace, to, uh, the advisory board for Veterans for Peace, and so that's a good organization. We start off this conversation about doing this kind of work, former veterans who are now working uh, for peace. Um, yeah, um, I first wanted to say my hat. You mentioned that I, it, it definitely, um, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible, but I wanna give credit to the author, Tony Kad uh, Bambara, and um, who, who was an amazing womanist and uh, black liberation uh, fighter um, uh, who have, who's passed some time ago now, but but unfortunately, a lot of our women leaders back then didn't get their due. So I try to wear the hat so that we can lift up those names um, within even our, our process. And yes, I am in Minnesota. Uh, you know, this, I'm actually just now getting used to flying again. Um, still wrapped up like a blanket when I fly <laughs> with mask and everything. But I am in Minnesota because I had to be here because my dear sister Tara Hauska and many others um, were getting rain rubber bullets from the um, the uh, our police departments who they who are who are our tax dollars is, is paying for them to shoot at the indigenous people who are literally fighting uh, 
not only for clean air and for clean water, but literally fighting for our planet. So I have to join them um, because I cannot allow for um, these folk to be shooting um, at our dear sisters who are up there. I have to just be with them. So, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a little thicker in girth, so I could probably take a few bullets getting uh, rubber bullets. <laughs> I could probably handle it, John. I'm not, I'll, I'll be, they probably bounce off with the old, off all this good eating here. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I actually just want to start with this. Um, so I don't know if people would know, but I actually, my, my, part of my, my, my clergy career um, was I was um, uh, a chaplain in the United States Air Force. Um, I don't know if people know that side of my story. I'm sure John does, but, but I was actually, I've served as a chaplain. And so, and then, um, and did that because at the time, you know, like many people in this country, no matter what color you are, race, background, you have this idea that um, what this country here in America is doing the right thing. Um, black people can dissect themselves from that party quicker. White people have a tendency to hold on to that kind of privilege a little longer. But it's this idea that this country is doing the right thing when it does what it is doing. And it kind of like you just kind of fall in suit. And so I think all of us are well-intentioned, I think, for those who, are, who have been in the military, those who have understood it, but I think there is an awakening. So I, what I wanted to bring up was this, that when I was in the military um, and was there, I was beginning to speak out against the war in Iraq. I had finished the top of my class out of officer training school with states. I was actually, my, my job was to do the uh, cemetery and burials at Arlington Cemetery, actually at Bowling Air Force Base. And so it was pretty high level stuff because of this, how well I scored on all those tests. So, you know, you get that kind of positioning, you hold on to it. But my faith and this, my belief in who I was ha had me speak truth to power. So they knew who I was. I just want to give you a, a story. They knew that I was already beginning to speak out. And so um, they put me up, for what was the a flag day, um, which actually uh, uh, now is the same day as our last president's birthday. But back then they had me speak and do what they wanted me to do a, a ceremony for all these generals. And so I gave them a, I gave them a, I gave them a, a, a sermon there. You know what I'm saying? And I said, you know, the sermon was titled, uh, who, who, would Je who would Jesus bomb? And that didn't, that, didn't, that didn't go over too well uh, in that, in that aspect. And so they had begun to do a court martial. This is important because when we do this work, I had two small children, my two sons, and um, was involved in the movement. Um, you know, my 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 wife um, at the time realized when, I, when it got real heavy, they wanted to court martial me. She did. She did. She said she didn't sign up for this this level. And I'm saying all this for this reason is because I kept going. I was really in, in, enthralled by the folks speaking out. But the more I spoke out, the more the, the military wanted to punish me. And then they, they ruled me a threat to national security. They put me on the fly list. They, um, when I went to the, the George Petraeus hearing um, with many other brave, particularly those who were in Code Pink and other groups, um, I was beaten. One of the first videos, if you remember, it became viral. First, one of the first viral moments was my getting beat 
by police brutality that still stands to this day is was me in the halls of Congress being being beaten, literally understood that when officers lie, soldiers die. So I say all this to lead to this thing is that the one thing that kept me going, though, was my faith, knowing that regardless of whatever was going to happen to me, my faith was that when I closed my eyes on this side of Jordan, that I knew I was doing the right thing. And so I, I, I fast forward that story to this. They uh, was very blessed. We had some amazing lawyers who were, who were in the movement. I won my case, got all my back pay, got honorable discharge. Didn't act on that stuff, but they gave it all to me. Um, you know, if I wanted benefits, I can get benefits. But I don't, you know, don't do none of that stuff. But what I do do is this. I realize now that the issue for us as Christians Hmm. is to always be Christians, no matter where you are. And that's not as easy as it seems. It could be, you could be, you could be like John, you could be within the Catholic church. You still got to be, hold to your faith. You could be me within as a chaplain in the air force. You still got to hold to your faith. You have to be you, whoever you are. The hard thing sometimes that we get attached to this side. And so let me close with this. Uh, hmm. You know, I work on a lot of issues. You mentioned climate and issues of police brutality. Uh, poverty, pollution, um, issues that particularly impact those who have been disenfranchised. And one time when I was, I was speaking, a young brother came to me, um, about 12 or 13, and I was particularly on regarding the environmental issue, and I was connecting the dots with no war, no warming was the, the topic. The young brother came to me, he said, Rev, I love what you get to say. And I don't know me see many folks like you talking about the environment. But he said this. He says, why do you want to save hell so bad? Why do you want to save hell so bad? Meaning that what we are creating for many people in this world is literally hell. Mm. And so we have to really be mindful that for them, they're living through police brutality, to racism, to poverty, to injustice, is hell. Hmm. And until we can fight to change that, hmm. nothing else is going to matter. Hmm. So I thank you for having this conversation Ooh, yeah, that we have to just understand that where we are and what we need to do and look forward to this dialogue as we go forward. Absolutely, Rev. Thanks. And, and we're too good at promising people heaven while ignoring the hells that they're living in, many of which that we've created. Uh, so thank you. And you made a good segue to John there by talking about being on the watch list. So another brother that is on uh, government watch list, is our, our next conversation partner, Reverend John Deere, Father John Deere. He's been a friend for a lot of years. We've gone to jail together. We've gone to Kabul together. We were in Afghanistan um, for, I was there really quickly. You were there a little longer than me, but we we're visiting these young people who have a dream for a world free of violence. And I, I think we, we should maybe tell a story or two about that, John, but they wear blue scarves to remind us all that we all live under the same blue sky. And they, uh, one of the quotes that they're often known for, this, this group, the Afghan Peace Volunteers in, um, in Kabul, they, they said, love is stronger than all the wars and weapons in the world. Love is the strongest force in the world. So, um, 
it's heavy, you know, to think of them right now and to think of what they're experiencing. But we spent some time there, John. You, you've uh, um, you've been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by uh, Desmond Tutu. I've been to your house. It's like a museum where you got Joan ba uh, ba Baez. You got all these like letters everybody's written. But most of all, you love Jesus. And every time I'm with you, <laughs> you know, whether we're in jail or getting in trouble, it's because of Jesus. So uh, I'm so glad you could do this tonight. So tell everybody else that doesn't know you a little bit more of your story, brother. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. And hi, everybody. It's great to be here. And uh, my motto is do whatever Shane says. Shane once called me and said, I just need you to come and get arrested. And I was like, OK, where am I going? And we got arrested at the Supreme Court against the death penalty. And then we went to Kabul and I'm going to speak for Shane Claiborne. So here I go. But I think it was one of the best experiences of our lives, actually going to Afghanistan. Wouldn't you agree, Shane, uh, with those kids? That's right. we, we were right in the middle of the war. And here are 30 Muslim teenagers and 20-year-old kids memorizing Martin Luther King's speeches in Farsi. Putting us to shame. I was impressed. Yeah. But uh, thanks for having me and thanks for all the great work that Red Letter Christians are doing. And I, I'm an old guy. And, uh, uh, you know, what happened to me was uh, I had a kind of a moment. My, you know, I grew up in D.C., was a very political family. Martin, I remember when I was eight or nine, Martin Luther King was killed and then Bobby Kennedy. And I went into a funk for 10 or 15 years because I thought if we kill the greatest people our country has produced. Well, what's the use of anything? And I said, when I was at college, well, there's nothing you can do. So I'm going to go off and be a pious priest. And that was my plan. And my parents were quite appalled. And they said, well, at least work, do it, get a job for a year. And I did that. And I thought, well, before I enter the seminary, I'm going to go camping through Israel to see where Jesus lived. I mean, if you're going to follow the guy, Shane, my thinking was, get to know where, know the lay of the land. That, I was like, I'm still like kindergarten level guy. And the week I left, the United States and Israel invaded Lebanon. It was the summer war of 1982 and we killed 60,000 people and all the tourist pilgrimages were canceled. Now I'm 21 years old, totally clueless. My plan is to walk through the Holy Land for a summer and meditate about Jesus. I'm gonna enter the, the Jesuit seminary. My goal was the Sea of Galilee. And I got there and I camped out at the sea for two weeks illegally. And there was nobody for miles and miles, nothing around because, well, something was going on, but who cared? I was clueless about it. And I get to the North Shore and there's the Chapel of the Beatitudes. It was a Wednesday afternoon, July 1981, 40 years ago. And I'm reading the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the peacemakers. And it said, love your enemies on the altar. And I walked out on the balcony. I'm looking out over the whole Sea of Galilee. And I, when you're walking for months and months, you start talking to the sky chain. You get really goofy. And I was looking at the sky. I'm going, are you kidding me? And this was the question. And I think it's important for all of us. You mean you want me to do this stuff? Isn't that like Shane Claiborne's job or the Pope or some bishop? Like my plan really was to be a nice, pious person as a Christian. 
That's not the plan at all of Jesus. Who cares what I want to do? The guy wants us to be a peacemaker. And I said, okay, I'll do it if you give me a sign. And all of a sudden there were these loud explosions as three Israeli jets fell from the sky, breaking the sound barrier, setting off sonic booms and swooped over the Sea of Galilee, dropped a whole bunch of bombs 15 miles away and killed people. Now, uh, it changed my life. And I said, okay, I will work on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of my life. That's what I'm going to do. Because that's what you want done. The Sermon on the Mount is the will of God. And uh, that's here I am today, still talking about it. I realized only later that that had been happening every hour I had been at the Sea of Galilee. But who cares? It's just mass murder. Just war. And I didn't have nothing to do with me because I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, I've been on quite a journey since then, and I found that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to work for peace, which means you can have nothing to do with war, which means you can have nothing to do with death or killing, and you end up like Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. King, pursuing the vision and the life of total nonviolence, which leads to universal love. You can have nothing to do with war, because war is total waste. It doesn't work. It's futile, but that doesn't even begin to touch it. It is the demonic. It is antichrist. And frankly, since I don't have any time, I'm against everything, you know, including military chaplains. I don't like the idea of chaplains to the Ku Klux Klan. I don't like chaplains to this, the death row executioners. We had a Jesuit priest, a chaplain in Abu Ghraib, and we think he was involved in torturing people. It's baloney. The chaplaincy is to get people out of the military, out of the clutches of death. Anyway, what happened to me, and then I'll shut up, is that I ended up at the feet of uh, Dan and Philip Berrigan. And, you know, they said, oh, yeah, you want to work for peace? Well, you got to get arrested. So I've been arrested at about 90 times now and done about a year in jail and hammered on a nuclear weapon and for case 20 years in prison. And I've been to about 25 different war zones and lived in El Salvador in 1985, which was the most traumatic experience of my life. We were, I was in a refugee camp and we were being bombed. And when um, the US backed death squads came in, my job was to go out and talk to them and hopefully they wouldn't kill people. And I was under the direction of the six Jesuit priests who were my friends, all later assassinated by US backed soldiers. So to me, to follow Jesus is to work for peace and to be living peace and to be practicing nonviolence. And that then means we're actually against all the forces of death and violence. And uh, we're, we're for the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God, Christianity, none of it makes sense to me outside of the boundaries of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not within the boundaries of nonviolence, if there's, if you want to do one little bit of violence, you have, you're a blasphemer against Jesus. Is that, can I say that chain? Yeah, you can I'm just say, say it. I'm just saying, bring it. Tell us how you uh, feel. And this is how I feel. To be a follower of Jesus and a person of nonviolence and a peacemaker means there is no cause, however noble, no matter what they tell us, for which you and I will ever accept the possibility of killing or taking a single human life, mm. much less remaining silent while we're decimating millions of people. So we don't kill people. We don't support people who are killing people. And we give our lives to work to end the killing. 
Amen. <laughs> Something worth dying for, nothing worth killing for. All right, my there you go, I'm telling you, some people celebrate their hundredth birthday, but you're, we're going to celebrate your hundredth arrest. When that happens, oh. we just throw a big party for you. Yeah, Dan Berrigan was arrested three hundred times, so we got a lot of more work to do, Shane and Rev. That's right. We can we can smile in our mug shots because we yeah. know we're on the right side of history, as John Lewis said. Right. So I'm yeah. going to come back to you in a minute, and you too, Diana. But Rev, I want to I want to come to you first too because, you know, some people, uh, they'll say you know there's these wars between the right and the left, and uh, you know, at Red Letter Christians, a lot of times we say. Uh, the things that we're talking about are not about right and left. They're about right and wrong. And they're centered on our faith in Jesus. And, you know, when we think about militarism and war, um, no matter, I mean, so we had Obama that raised the federal budget uh, on war. We had, uh, you know, uh, Trump that raised the budget on war. And now Biden has raised the military budget. Um, I, I always just it breaks my heart that in 2016, when Obama was president, we dropped 26,000 bombs in one year, 72 a day, three every hour. So this is not a partisan thing. Right. And I, I think it, it would be helpful to hear a little bit about um, how we organize and how we think about where change is going to happen when it seems like it's not really coming from either party. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it we, we, change is not happening again, because both parties are within the, the confines of the, particularly the military industrial complex. And so there's not going to come from there, but to, to some large degree, some are much more open about it, about their connection, and some, some are not. Um, and that goes across the board to other entities of, um, that impact us, the military industrial complex, um, the fossil fuel industry, and you can go on and go on and go on. Um, and so I think that we have to break that. We have to realize that it's not about being even partisan, but being um, not or being not being nonpartisan, but literally being postpartisan. And so I think that's one of the key things here. Let me actually go back to something. Well, I, I like that post postpartisan. I like yeah, that. No, we have to be postpartisan in this work. But let me go back to why this is much harder than what it seems, though. Um, you know, one of the things I, I had the pleasure of teaching um, at Georgetown, as John knows, is a Jesuit institution in Georgetown. And, and one of the things there, um, if you look at the history of that, um, was around the aspects of, of slavery. And the Jesuits back then had a decision to make. And they were dealing with a lot of folks who were coming on their campus at the time. Um, and they were also slave owners. And they, they had to deal with their faith and the issue of slavery. And so what the Jesuits decided was that, okay, to, make, to, to, to show the world what it means, we're going to go out here and we're going to own slaves. And so that's what took place. And it's, and it's a horrific history, actually, um, because what we know now today is that they bought land out in the eastern shore of Maryland. And then people said it was actually one of the worst plantations. Um, Frederick Douglass actually was on one of those plantations and many others. And it was a plantation. They said people who actually will pray with you and then beat you. And I bring that up for this reason, because a lot of times people say one thing and they do another. 
And so a lot of times, if it was Democrats in particular or Republicans, that they'll say they're for peace, but their actions don't speak to peace. And, and, that's, and that's the thing about it. And they're actually causing more harm than what needs to be, that, that needs to be done. We then have to understand who really is for peace? Who really is for uh, putting in something that's going to save lives? And are we willing to stand up? Now, back then, it was actually the group, the Quakers were, were there, and they actually were the group that was said that they were too, actually too far, too radical. They were talking about the, mm. the abolition of slavery. But again, we have to be radical in that, in that spirit. We have to have, we have to say we must abolish war. We have to be radical in what we're talking about. So right now, what I'm saying is that for those who are Democrats, a lot of times right now in this moment, if we see something that is wrong, we are quiet when Democrats are in charge. When we see something that's wrong, when the other side does it, we get very vocal. It should not matter what letter is on the back of someone's name for you to be vocal. You have to speak up no matter who's in charge at that time. And a lot of times what we realize is that we, we connect our own privilege to the process, our own connections, our own whereabouts, and we're not willing to give that up. When we're willing to really put it on the line, I'm not talking about going through uh, uh, the, 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 the facade of this going through protests. I'm saying, but when you really try to put your life on the line, saying I'm willing to give up my life so they can have peace that is what we're talking about here. And if it's Democrat or Republican or independent or whoever, if it's wrong, it's wrong. And we have to be able to stand up to say mm. it's wrong and to make a, make that change happen. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to some of that. Thanks, brother, for getting us going on that. And I, I, I want to I also think about the church, you know, because there's a lot of folks that w- would say, I mean, there's a lot of evangelicals, especially a lot of folks that are connected to RLC that feel like, you know, our hope is not in the government. Our hope is in the church. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, you know, Father John, Reverend John down there has got, you know, his anarchistic tendencies, his Dorothy Day leaning. So I'm, hey. I'm, 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 I want to hear a little bit about where you see hope in the church, because, you know, we've also been um, responsible for some of the most horrific blood-stained pages of history, the Inquisition, the colonization of peoples, the baptizing of bombs, you know, and so uh, the church has been an instrument of violence a lot of times, but there's some good stuff happening now, and Pope Francis, and you've been a part of this, have been challenging just war theory and um, nuclear weapons, so um, you don't have to name too many of the evils. I think a lot of us looking, leaning into the conversation tonight are aware of the evils, but you can share some of them. But I want you to share like where you see hope right now um, in the church and people who are responding out of their conscience to try to do something about it. Wow, what a question, Shane. And I'm just going to come right out with it, okay? So bless me, Reverend, for I have sinned. I, I don't think of it that way. I know you're going to say, everybody says I should just become an evangelical, but my hope is in Jesus and it's in God and the kingdom of God, not in the church. Then what do we mean by the church? Churches, communities of our friends of the nonviolent Jesus. Great. Still, (laughs) that we've had so many hits by the disaster of the church communities cooperating with violence at every level. 
that I don't think of it that way. That's just how I've survived in the church for my whole life working in the church. Um, You know, in a nutshell, after 300 years, the early church, there was a church of martyrs because they were all about nonviolence. They, once Constantine came, came in, they threw out the Sermon on the Mount, turned to the pagan Cicero, started to justify violence, and then made up this just war theory, which has nothing to do with the gospel. So for 1,700 years, Christians have been killing everybody. We're the problem in the world because we've rejected the nonviolence of Jesus. So my life's work has been to get people back to realizing that Jesus is nonviolent. If you want to follow this guy, you got to be nonviolent like Gandhi and King. So Rev, I don't use the word peace anymore. How about that? I'm just trying to push Shane's buttons here. Everything you say, I, I wouldn't say anymore because of all my work, for example, at Los Alamos, where they build all the nuclear weapons in the United States. I remember speaking to the high school kids at Los Alamos. Everybody in Los Alamos is Christian, building nuclear weapons, and for peace. Everybody's for peace. Hitler's for peace. Obama, who rebuilt Los Alamos, won the Nobel Peace Prize and gave the greatest pro-war speech in modern history. It's all meaningless. And that's why Martin Luther King and Gandhi stopped using the word peace. And they use this much more difficult, uncomfortable, clumsy word, nonviolence. And why I only use that word, nonviolence. That we have to become people of nonviolence. Well, Shane, what was exciting was a couple of years ago, some of us said <laughs> we were, it was maybe too much drinking, but we went, so let's just go to the Vatican and get them to work on nonviolence. This was under Pope Benedict. Pope Francis comes along and says, come on over. And we had this. What you're saying was the spirits were moving, huh? (laughs) The Holy Spirit was moving because it was the first gathering on nonviolence in the Catholic Church in history. Wow. And there were 85 people there. To be there, you had to personally end a war, be under constant death threat, or spend time in prison. It was an incredible experience. And there were only three of us from the States. And now it's become a group led by my friend Marie Dennis, the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative. But anyway, out of that, we asked Francis to write an encyclical on nonviolence, like his great statement on climate change, which has had a huge impact for good in the world. And we're still working with him on that. But he issued the first statement on nonviolence in the history of the Catholic Church and basically said there's no more just war theory. You can't be involved in the military anymore. Jesus was totally nonviolent, and all of us have to start changing the course. And in fact, the church has to be disarmed. What is the church? The church is the nonviolent community of the nonviolent followers of the nonviolent Jesus. That's my definition. And Francis is saying that. That's pretty darn hopeful, Shane. I never thought I'd live to see anything like that. But we're still pushing Francis just like I'm pushing everybody else. Wish us luck. Yo, I love it. Keep doing it, man. And uh, let me know if you need anybody to carry your bags to the Vatican. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't I'm want to come to the Vatican. No, I've you don't. The pasta is very good, though. I should say. I've got a cross over here made out of a gun for Pope Francis. By the way, I've got it. He's got his name on it. But uh, anyway, uh, thanks. That was so good. Um, and uh, you know, as we continue to kind of move towards the hope. Um, Diana, I want I want to you to share about some of your work and some of the places where you see hopeful faith 
based resistance to war and militarism. And as we think about that, I got these words that I carry with me. It's this tattered old paper of um, the words that gave birth to the Christian peacemaker teams, which is a group that, you know, I went to Iraq with during uh, the, the time that that war was being launched. And um, this is in 1984, Ron Sider said, unless we are prepared to risk injury and death in nonviolent opposition to the injustices our societies foster. We don't dare even whisper another word about pacifism to our sisters and brothers in desperate lands. And I'm, I think of Afghanistan right now. Unless, unless we are ready to die developing new nonviolent attempts to reduce international conflict, we should confess that we never really meant that the cross was an alternative to the sword. Making peace is as costly as waging war. Unless we are prepared to pay the cost of peacemaking, we have no right to claim the label or preach the message. And you're one of those that, as you left the military, you've dedicated your life to, to trying to live in the way of the cross. So share a little bit about what that's looked like, and then we're going to hear you know, a, a final word from, from everybody else. But thank you. Yeah, the thing that, that like puts fire in my bones that I see so much hope in that I come back to again and again is that Jesus gave himself up for us while we are yet still his enemy on the cross. And so like, I don't care what the conversation is. I don't care what place it is on the planet. I don't care if we decide if there are our friends or our enemies, like our faith is a blank check. It is our debt to love. And that's what Jesus did for me. And that's what I get to do. And Shane, uh, I always think of you as kind of like the person who stood there and called for peace in Iraq before I even cared about peace. And so I love it that we get to do it together. So um, one of the hopeful things that I see is um, there's a little tiny church in my town in a sea of little white snowy heads, gray hairs, and they're the first people who show up in my city, the first people to show up um, to be a neighbor whoever raises their hand and says, whether they're water protectors, whether they're kids in a school, whether they are um, LGBTQT folks who need help, they show up. And so I think like whatever the conversation is, whatever the need is, I think the simplest way people of faith, what we what all, all you need to ask yourself is how do I be a good neighbor? And then you show up and then you just link arms with somebody and say, hey, you want to come with me? because so-and-so needs a meal, or hey, these kids at this school, they need a little bit of help. These, these teachers, they need a little, little bit of help getting ready for school. Um, I think that we don't have to make a case. We don't even have to use the word peace. I think deep down in our knower, we know that Jesus calls us to be a good neighbor. We know we're called to love somebody the way that God loves us, and it's super simple. Mm. Um, and so I think that's the hopeful things that I see. And I think no matter what, even if people don't agree with you, you don't even have to like win the argument. People want to be a good neighbor because I think God's put something in us, this unshakable goodness that we actually want to be better than we are. Like we're kind of designed to love, even if we don't even, we're not even there yet. We're kind of drawn to it. And so that's the hopeful thing. Like I do it with my kids. And the simplest example is when your friend asks you to help them move, nobody wants to go on a Saturday and help your friend move, but you do it. And you're glad you did it. Cause there's a little part of you that actually wants to help. 
Um, so I, I do it on my, I've got a little thing called the Waging Peace Project, which kind of walks people through how do you show up mm-hmm. in big ways and small ways and like wage peace in your community. Um, I also, um, one of the Red Letter Christians partners is Preemptive Love and they're doing good work in Iraq. But one of the thing is you gotta stay. Like don't start things that you're not gonna stick around for. And one of the things I challenge people for is pick one thing in your community and then commit to working for it. Tell, tell it it actually fixes itself or you die. Like Martin Luther King in his entire like time that he worked in the movement, I think he only worked on like seven issues because he, when he started, he wouldn't quit. So like if, if you want to work with, and like in my city, I work with people who are unsheltered and I'm going to commit to like working on that issue until everybody in my city um, has a place to stay. And it's worth it to me. I'm never going to regret it. I'm not going to quit. So like, don't skip around, like commit and work for it. Um, So when you choose to partner with an organization, partner for life, you will have no regrets, but don't just hop on the bandwagon, commit to an organization or commit to something. Um, yeah, and there's yeah, a few so, other things too. What are you gonna I'm going to come back to you in just a second because we're going to get let let everybody give a closing word, and I want I want to make sure that people know how to follow your work. So we'll come right back around cir- full circle to you, Diana, in just a second. Okay. But this hour flew by, you all. Uh, I think we could keep going. John warned us that we need like not an hour, but like a, about a week and a half to actually have a this, this cover all the issue uh, that we want to talk about tonight. But keep leaning in. And I want to give a final word for each. Um, uh, we'll start with you, Rev, um, to give a final word of how people can follow and how people can take action. Because, you know, you walk away from a conversation like this. We don't want people just to be like, oh, that was that was a good word. You know, like we want people to actually uh, put prayer, put their prayer into action. Um, so let people know how they can follow what you're doing and other ways that they can really um, put flesh on stuff. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's always good to be with all of you uh, on this panel. Um, for me, uh, the work that I do with the Hip Hop Caucus, and the Hip Hop Caucus is doing some amazing work and around issues of this, uh, you know, make hip hop not war. <laughs> uh, we're doing we're doing work around obviously the climate, a lot of work around that, work around poverty, the pandemic, pollution, and this really connecting the dots in the spirit of our dear brother Damu Smith and many others. I think that, you know, we're trying to make sure that we have an intersectional movement. So Hip Hop Caucus is the same thing at Hip Hop Caucus on Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, you can find it. Um, and I guess I want to just close with this. Um, one of the things is that, you know, working at the Hip Hop Caucus helps me in, to be around a lot of young people. I think me and John have had this conversation before. Um, the, the reality is that these folks that we have, our Gandhis, our Dr. Kings, our Dorothy days, our Cesar Chavez, we, we have them right now. Um, and in reality, they are dealing with much more because they're not only dealing with the issue of equality, as did all of those folks, including Jesus. They're dealing with existence. 
when you're dealing with existence, um, it's a different kind of tenor. Um, and so they're literally dealing with that from, from nukes, from war, from poverty, from famine to climate. They're dealing with that existence now. Um, and so they're rising up. And so my last word would be that let us ensure that this next generation and we support them um, because they are amazing. Mm. And God has a way of putting things, uh, giving us what we need to take on the moment. So I just think that we need to focus on them and 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 be with, and watch them continue to do what needs to be done. But thank you so much yeah, for, for having me. And again, good to see you. Um, and it's good, definitely good to see you. Always good to see my dear brother, John Deere. Um, yeah, man. I, I just want to close with this. I asked John one time to do a podcast. Uh, we were <laughs> one time. No, this is, this is real. And he was the only person I knew would speak out against the, um, we were doing with, with the native, uh, our indigenous citizen brothers. He was the only one who I knew would deal with the, the schools that used to try to transition. And, uh, and, I, and I end with that because it was a great thing that I knew him. It also was sad that you mentioned our church and we don't have as many people who just are brave. And I'm wondering, why do you go to church? Why do you believe what you believe if you don't have faith? Mm, mm. I just, I'm wondering, I just, maybe it's me, but if you're so tethered to this world, then just live this world. But if you mm. believe what you say, then have faith and have faith more abundantly. Thank you, Sean. Man, I got my, I got my uh, hair standing up on that one. Glory. Uh, why do we, why do we even go to church if we if we ain't got the faith to believe that things can be different come on man uh all right john bring it bring us a final word uh, no i just want to say a big thank you and it's so it's a blessing and thanks for raising the question of war nobody talks about this in the churches it's just so shocking uh it's everything is always shocking to me uh, but well you know rev if if you if you've got guns you got money and you believe in the American military and you got your nukes, you don't need God. Hmm. You know, but if you believe, if you're a practitioner of nonviolence and you're serving the poor, you, oh, God's all you got. You really need God for your security. Then the Bible, the Psalms and the Gospels make sense. But if you got one gun, if you believe in the troops, you're an idolater, a blasphemer, a heretic, because you don't believe in the God. And that's the question. The problem of faith is who do we believe in? Well, we believe in some kind of false god of war. And the good news, the scandal of Jesus is that God is nonviolent. And nobody is talking about that. We're talking about everything but that. And Gandhi said, we will never get anywhere until we begin to reimagine, if you're with me, Reimagine the, the image of God. Your image of God is God is nonviolent. Only then will you begin to worship a God of nonviolence, which therefore means justice, equality, and peace. And only once you worship the living God of peace and nonviolence will we ever become people of peace and nonviolence. And I say that, Shane, is that all right? Oh. But you know, the thing about 
What's you're happening? Gonna get, you're, gonna get me, you're gonna get me singing over here. Something no, that nobody wants that, Shane. Nobody Some can somebody mute Shane. <laughs> but anyway, a war is everything. War is racism, war is sexism, war. So we've had we killed Christ, we killed the poor, and now we have war on the earth. That's what um Rev is talking about. Whatever we're doing. We have to deal with climate change, which is the destruction of the Earth. Read the UN report and nuclear weapons. We're closer to nuclear war right now than we've ever been since World War II. And very few people are talking about it. Going to wake up and see a, a city has been new. That's where we're headed very soon. What to do? I would say three things: study nonviolence. Dr. King and Gandhi's phrase as a way to understand the methodology of change. How can you be a nonviolent person, be nonviolent toward yourself and everybody you ever meet, nonviolent toward every human being on the planet, all the creatures, nonviolent to Mother Earth, and um, be a teacher of nonviolence. That's how change comes, unfortunately, only from bottom-up people power grassroots movements of nonviolence, from Jesus to Dr. King to Rev and all the millions of movements nowadays of nonviolence. So you have to be part of that because Jesus was a nonviolent movement organizer. If you really study the gospels, that's what they're marching to Jerusalem. I always joke that Jesus thinks he's Gandhi. And can I say that? Is that anyway? So that would be my second point. Really study and start teaching that Jesus is nonviolent. And if you don't believe it, go and really pray over it. And talk about was Jesus nonviolent in your churches and your groups? I started a new organization last year to work on that question. It's called the Beatitude Center of the Nonviolent Jesus. People can get my books on it, and we're doing free podcasts and a Zoom thing like this every week. Next month, I have Jim Lawson coming on. After that, I have Gandhi's grandson, Raj Mohan Gandhi, who's the greatest biography of Gandhi. It's really great. It's BeatitudeCenter.org. My last point is the question about God. All of this ultimately is about obeying the nonviolent Jesus who went from blessed are the peacemakers to love your enemies. And when I was a kid, Shane, I couldn't figure it out. I wanted to say, Jesus, I'll do it, but you got to give me a reason why. And no one could help me with that until I found Martin Luther King's sermon. This was when I was about 22. And you can imagine Martin, he's going, Jesus, don't say love your enemies because it's the right thing to do, even though it is. Doesn't say love your enemies because it's the philosophical good to be done, even though it is. He doesn't say love your enemies because it's the only practical political solution left on the planet, Mm. even though it is. It's not idealism. Killing our enemies is going to lead to the destruction. Why? Mm. I think it's the most important sentence in the whole vibe. Uh, gospel and the Bible is so political. Love your enemies. And it's the only sentence where Jesus describes the nature of God. Love your enemies because God lets the sun rise on the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God practices universal nonviolent love. Is that the God we want? I don't think we do. And that's what I think we all need to sit with for a long time. And I'm thinking that all these gods of war aren't working. And I hope we can begin to mull on that sentence. That's my thought. God bless everybody. Thank you for, sorry for preaching fine, Shane. 
so good yeah so good so diana uh you're gonna you're gonna give us a, a one last word and then we're gonna have a, a a poem from micah i think he's gonna hop back on here but thank you rev thank you reverend john Deere, and uh thank you diana um go ahead and tell us how people can follow you and keep track of your work yeah one last word thank you so much Rev, because i'm raising two sons and they need you um they need you but one other thing, if we're going to change the narrative violence, then I think we need people to support veterans. I think if you support veterans and veterans call out the country and faith people, we will change the narrative. Um, so you can support a veteran. You can follow me. You can buy my book. But it also really changes families because they hear the story of a veteran and they, um, they're changing what they think and they're changing um what they know and so you can follow me uh shane wrote a very nice little blurb on the back um so pass it along support veterans veterans um, will change our communities and congress listens to veterans when veterans say no to war and veterans show up at schools and tell kids there's other ways to be successful to serve their country to change their communities they will start to change their career paths um, they, they will see mm. ways to do it so that is one so way good. to change the story. Micah, thank you so much. So good. Yeah, Micah, before we come, I want you to take your time too, Micah. You've been quiet and you're going to send us out just three quick things. One is that Red Letter Christian's Book of the Month is Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles and Sung Shan Ra. And if you're not reading it, even if you didn't do your homework and read it, you can join us uh, at the end of the month as we talk about this book and especially the doctrine of discovery and the violence done to natives. Uh, much of it in the name of Jesus. And we're going to be doing a whole series around the Beatitudes. Uh, in the, and it's very related to what we're talking about here tonight. The Beatitudes of Jesus, blessed are the poor, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, uh, the first of September. One of the events that we're doing is alongside the 150th anniversary of the NRA. So the National Rifle Association is celebrating its 150th year. And we are going to be down in Houston mourning the lives lost to gun violence. We're going to be turning guns into plows and shovels, melting them down as an alternative narrative to the NRA. Uh, you can join us live and you can also join us in Houston. By the way, these, these um, tools that we make out of guns, Kristen, who's behind the scenes there organizing the tech side, her, she and her husband, Greg, make the, the handles out of the gun woodstock. So we're beating guns into plows. We're going to do it in Houston as the uh, NRA meets. And then on the, ninth, uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, on September 11th, we're going to do a live reading of Martin Luther King's beautiful Riverside speech, where he names the triplets of evil as racism, materialism, and militarism. And he talks about the United States, right? The greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. So we're going to read that speech on 9-11. And hopefully, John and Rev, you can join us and be readers of that. We got like 20 readers already that are going to read sections of that live on September 11th at noon. Um, so a lot going on, y'all. We're trying to do all this for free when we can, but we're going to give a small gift to each of the folks that were a part of the conversation tonight, including Micah. So if you can go to our website and just give a small gift, go to redletterchristians.org. If you can't, pray for us. We love you anyway. Money, it ain't about money. It's about uh, living out the words of Jesus. So thanks for leaning into the conversation. Micah Bournet is going to send us out, and there's nobody that I can imagine 
uh, that I would like to do that more than you, man. So thank you for being here. Send us home. Yeah, you know, um, I was just listening and processing a lot. And, you know, Shane and I have had uh, opportunities to share a lot of stages and I'm always grateful uh, when I'm invited. Um, But as I'm reflecting on what I heard today, uh, one thing that I always come back to when we're talking about nonviolence, whether it's like international war or domestically fighting for justice as a black person in America. Um, I think a lot of people think nonviolence is naive, right? And one of the most interesting criticisms of Dr. King and the nonviolent movement um, that he was a part of uh, was that uh, he was anti-black. Some black folks called him anti-black because they're like, we're literally getting lynched. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're beating us and you just want us to not defend ourselves and die, you know? And, um, and I understand that, like as a human being, I understand that. And there were other movements, whether it was the Nation of Islam or later the Panthers who were committed to justice, but not committed to nonviolence. I respect those movements. I understand and I have empathy for those movements. But one thing I always say is, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't think nonviolence is simply the Christian thing to do. I don't think it's simply the moral high road. Although I agree, yeah, as a Christian, I do think Jesus is nonviolent. So if I'm gonna follow him, I need to do this. However, I personally am also convinced that it actually is the most effective tool for what we want to accomplish. Um, And I think so often when we talk about things uh, like issues in the world and the different sides. You know, we say like God and Satan, right and wrong, uh, truth and lies, justice and injustice, love and hate. And we, we talk about them right next to each other like they're equally powerful. And we're just rooting for the goodness to win and for, you know, hate or love to, to overpower hate. And, and, but we're like biting our fingers and, and, or biting our nails and crossing our fingers. And I, I think that's, wrong. I think that love is overwhelmingly more powerful than hate. I think that God is overwhelmingly stronger than Satan, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that I want to win. So I'm going to lean into what is stronger. And when I think about it in the context of the American, American history and, and specifically Black Americans fight for justice and equality, you know, although I respect and understand those other movements, if you're talking about the civil rights movement, the nonviolent approach accomplished so much more, (laughs) you know, and it inspired so many people. I do believe that. And I'm glad those other movements existed and they're important parts of the conversation. But, you know, realistically, if if black folks really would have just tried to get a bunch of weapons and take over the government, they just would have mowed us down. They just would have killed us. I mean, what did they do to the Panthers? They just threw them in jail. They infiltrated them. They shut them down because the Panthers was walking around with them guns, you know? And they were like, nah, nah, we, oh, if you want to get in a gun battle, we're going to win. We're America, <laughs> right? And so they shut them down real quick. And so I'm like, I actually, yes, I think it's the moral high ground and the Christian thing to do, but I also think nonviolence is the most effective uh, way to accomplish the things we, we want. And mm-hmm. that actually it's overwhelmingly a more powerful method. And, mm-hmm. and God's way is way stronger. Um, than the way of of hate and Satan and violence. Um, So that being said, I want to end with this original poem 
uh, off the album I, I came out with in 2018. It's called A Time Like This, but this poem is, is titled Just War Theory. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Say you want peace, but forever make war. Freedom ain't free, better aim for the core. But freedom ain't freedom if you're killing the poor. Would you die for what you believed at 18? Do you trust your teenage perception of complexities, of self, of God, good and evil, right and wrong, truth, love, global economy, foreign relations, just war theory? Did you even know what those terms meant back then? Armed forces recruit youth to fight wars of cowardly men. Three years too young to be trusted with a margarita, but Uncle Sam handing teenagers guns. Children deployed to front lines at the command of a commander in chief they were too young to vote for. Killing poor folk they do not know over conflicts they do not understand. And when they die, we thank them for their service, drape patriotism over their casket and claim they sacrificed for freedom's sake. I, for one, am not grateful. I grieve for the loss of life, but they ain't die for my freedom. If you die for America, you die for a nation that still treats me subhuman. Fallen soldiers are victims, not heroes. Victims of a government that sends their young and poor to early graves, all because old men are stuck in their ways, willing to sacrifice other people's lives to maintain power and privilege. Running to war as a first resort, not creative enough to dream up other forms of conflict resolution. Unless, of course, they are the terrorists, the white knights lynching the innocent, police brutalizing the citizens, then they prefer peaceful protest. Then they believe nonviolent resistance to evil is effective. Sometimes I wonder if these wars were domestic, would they think twice about bombing enemy lairs in residential areas in Beverly Hills and Times Square? If civilian casualties were their own wives and children, would they be eager to wage warfare? Would they get better at diplomacy, learn how to compromise, <clears throat> de-escalate tensions, learn to fight fire with water, war with peace, stop spending billions on defense and pour resource into foreign aid, education and disaster relief, make friends out of would-be enemies, fight evil with poetry, appoint rappers as foreign ambassadors because hip hop already united the Atlas, Middle Eastern kids bumping chants and Kendrick. There is another way. No disrespect to vets with post-traumatic stress or soldiers who lost their life, but no one is a hero just because they fight. I am not grateful for your service. I don't know what you did on tour. Even aside from possible war crimes, I'm not sure if I believe in this war, but I am grateful you made it back alive. I do pray you find peace for your war torn mind. I do pray you put down your weapon and realize you can fight for freedom without killing for it. You can die for freedom without killing for it. That's the only kind of freedom worth fighting for, worth dying for, worth living for. But if you live by the sword, die by the sword. Say you want peace, but forever make war. Freedom ain't free, better aim for the core. But freedom ain't freedom if you're killing the poor. Thank y'all. Come on. That's tonight, y'all. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this special Faith Forum conversation. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but bringing heaven to earth while we live. 
Thank you for listening. For more information, check out our website, www.redletterchristians.org, and follow us on social media.